the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You know, when you think about your relationship with others, so much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well, he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God-Shaped Brain. Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist and master psycho pharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science and brain science is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. 
we hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter or things of this sort. I mean, most definitely science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, and the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers, so you actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and enkephalins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, uh, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer answer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to beat this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her, her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly those of you in the the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God uh, based on maybe the, the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God? You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these, these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process. Process, and things changed, and you, you can see that history where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to imposed rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely. And what's uh, what's, uh, striking is that most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking 
talking about a non-Christian, somebody in a Wiccan camp worshiping, you know, white witchcraft, and these they would say, oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking though is that within Christianity, within any any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians, and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed him. But you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God, and and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak, uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in, in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life. I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I um, was challenged by my faculty who, by and large, didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have down on those who do look on God as somehow being, un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way. And so they really challenged us and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and, and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept. And uh, these ideas were very challenging for me. And I had the premise that, okay, I believe God is real. If he is real, then the evidence should support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God's word and not have to simply say, well, I believe and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts. And, uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there. And it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and, and validating to, to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence-based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the um, in the patient relationship in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of, of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, etc., etc., find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, and who is self-sacrificial, beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental, punishing God, and one believes God is, is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people and I have patients come see me and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault because when she was an adolescent, she had gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or 
for mistakes. I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors. And this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chronic fear and anxiety going. Whereas if you come back to the knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which are called the anterior scene of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there. And, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong. And it doesn't go your way, and it doesn't feel good, and you just don't, you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything. wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself. We're exploring that equation, a look at the God-shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life. Written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. A look at the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we give mental assent to this around the around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about Philippians 4, 8, a passage of scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, Finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth, if they be of good report, any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to, to meditate um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ? Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally, and yet when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is somehow this idea is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus. But it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with his design for life, actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here and now. Mm. 
Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, We know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us, uh, that kind of a fight-flight reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation... Does that also produce that that kind of chemical reaction in the brain? Absolutely, and I, and this is what we've shown in in the, in the uh, from the science and from the in the book is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear, and so there's actually neurobiologically there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion, altruistic regard, self-sacrifice, beneficence. We're not talking erotic or romantic love. We're talking that, that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend, that kind of love. When Christ said, um, you know, uh, greater love is no man that he lay his life down for a friend, this kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever is for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love for their children if they're children in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical. Love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm. This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it, of course, goes back to a childhood. Um, we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly Father who would sacrifice his only begotten son on our behalf and we we, some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug crazed alcoholic uh, driven abusive father and so the notion of being able to equate a loving heavenly father who sacrifices his son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with him is antithetical to their to their manner of thinking yes you're exactly right and that is a barrier for some people. Our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way. And that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, uh, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals. And so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us. We talk about this notion in Scripture of bringing our thoughts into captivity. 
how can we rewire all of this? Um, you know, this is a great point. And um, I put it, I point out in the book that the way the, the brain is designed is that the, the there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuron, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons that are influences of proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF. And that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's, a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this, this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So pro-BDNF, the weed killer, is cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger. The circuit grows. But if you're, if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit, then the enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a new language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory, and you keep practicing, you're firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced, and you get more of the fertilizer, and it expands, and you keep doing it, and the circuitry grows, and then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where, where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior, but can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit, you're still producing the enzyme, you're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger, and so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity. Hmm. So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God, um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that, as much as the way we see the way the brain will react to, to violence and the numbing effect, oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games or, or television programs, and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the, to the reality of what they're really facing. Then mm-hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So if, if then there has been a long process of training, so to speak, the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared and, and as a result um, has, has set up this boundary uh, that prevents us from being able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships we mentioned a moment ago, how do we retrain that process? Yeah, this is uh, in our book. We've introduced this idea of 
the um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence. And we've, and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are Scripture, all scripture is given by God for inspired, inspired by God is given for instruction and so forth. Science, it says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. The scripture says, check me out, experience me. And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then scripture alone without the other two, I don't know if you know, but the, the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. Hmm. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty, and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love. And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God. But we hold those other distorted concepts. We actually have more disease and, and we have more disability. There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach. And I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with a distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and, and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the, the, uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8, of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and, and reinventing, so to speak, the way we think of God and ultimately relate to Him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author. Dr. Timothy Jennings for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It began as, well, perhaps any Memorial Day weekend does for many of us. Plans to get away, enjoy three days off, spend some time maybe doing a bit of traveling, sightseeing, or just hang out with the family. That was certainly the plan in place for Brian Brown and his family as they set out Memorial Day weekend on a Saturday just a year ago to fly to Idaho to go visit a daughter. That weekend, though, turned out to be anything other than a happy one. Though when everything was said and done, it certainly was demonstrative of God's keeping and saving power. 
Brian joins us tonight to share his story detailed inside the pages of a new book called Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. And Brian, great to have you on the program. Good evening, Craig. Thanks for having me. Well, as we mentioned, this was Memorial Day of just a year ago in 2012. And uh, that Saturday, you had plans to uh, get into your uh, your private plane. I understand you're, you're a private uh, pilot. You've got a little Cessna 172. And I, I guess in some respects, that weekend might not have been different from any other when you hopped into the airplane to go take a, a quick trip. You were planning to head over to, to Idaho to go visit your daughter, Tabitha. That's right. Yeah, it was a very routine trip, just like you had mentioned, uh, just like a lot of people make every day. And uh, we just had an unexpected turn of events, that's for sure. Now, you're an experienced pilot. You've been flying for a lot of years. You've owned this particular airplane for a lot of years. While it's an older plane, it's it's a plane that you describe inside the pages of Rescued as one that's been very well maintained and has a, a history of reliability. And certainly if there's any uh, pilots in the audience, they, they might know some of the history and reliability of the, the Cessna 172. You also come at this with a unique background in that... Uh, professionally you're you're a rescuer you work for the the fire department up in the galt area which i think is a pretty close to put it in in perspective for our listeners here in this part of california you're up near roseville right uh, it's a little uh, south of Sacramento, actually. South of Sacramento, okay. Yeah. And so uh, you work as a firefighter. You've been on search and rescue teams. You, you do this professionally and have for, for many years. So some might think that this day would not only be a routine day in a reliable airplane, that you had plenty of experience flying, but you're a guy that, gee, if you're going to be up in an airplane somewhere, I'd like to have you along with me. It's good. <laughs> you feel good to have an experienced uh, firefighter and rescue person with you. Yeah, it, it is a good combination, uh, especially after all of this. I could definitely vouch for that. <laughs> this weekend, as I'm sure listeners have already figured out, though, didn't quite end the way you and your wife and daughter Heather had planned. No, um, certainly not at all. We um, we had started our trip, and the, the weather was absolutely crystal clear. It was a beautiful trip, uh, and... We were actually only about an hour away from our destination, and the weather had, had turned very sour uh, to the point where I couldn't see through the windshield. It was raining so hard, um, I couldn't see through the windshield. And it's you know, not too uncommon to fly in some rain, um, but again, that's, that's just out of the question to continue. And I had made an abrupt turn to get out of the, out of the weather and then actually put the plane down in a small remote strip in Rome, Oregon. Your, your, your daughter from some of the turbulence, I think uh, you account in the book, had, uh, well, let's say when, you're, when your tummy is bothering you on a road trip, you can find the nearest rest stop. It's kind of hard to do, though, when you're in an airplane, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Yeah, she, she got a little sick. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a really rough flight for her. And not being a real fan of flying to begin with, that certainly didn't um, didn't help any of the matters. That's for sure. Now this is late May. This is this is good weather. I mean, we're yeah. into you know kind of the unofficial launch of summer, and it's it's uh, picnics and barbecues. You set out that morning in in route to uh, as we say to Mountain Home, Idaho, to go visit your daughter Tabitha. There was no anticipation that you would find inclement weather along the way, was there? Um, no, not not to the degree that we did. I, we knew that there was some weather out there because I did do some pre-planning and I did see some weather out there, but it was also all moving to the east, the same direction we were. Mm. And, and in fact, what 
some of my hopes were was that the weather would actually pull us faster across, you know, heading eastbound because we'd be kind of right behind that front. Have the weather beat you, in other words, yeah. Yeah, it would have it would have just really kind of slingshotted us right into where we needed to to be. And but in fact, what had happened was all that weather had stalled right in front of us. Now you started out what time of day? We started out first thing in the morning at about seven thirty. All right. So with what I think is probably around of what four hour plane flight, mm-hmm. uh, you should have comfortably been there. You know, maybe maybe in time for a fashionably late lunch. Yeah, that, uh, and that was the plans of our oldest daughter. Um, as a matter of fact, we had um, some loose plans of, of stopping into Boise for lunch at one of the, her favorite restaurants. And as the day progressed, obviously, all of our casual lunch uh, plans had changed as well. Yeah, and in fact, almost from the get-go, uh, yeah. there were a couple of things that transpired that, that maybe what, is it fair to say, in, in retrospect, might have told you that this was not going to be a very good day? Um no, not totally. Um, I mean, if you're you're referring to like the the battery, we had had a battery issue with the aircraft, and that's actually really common as well, especially during that time of the year, uh, because we weren't in the flying season. We were just getting ready to to become into the the best flying season. And so I hadn't flown that much. And it's and, like, you know, car collectors in the audience that know that you got the baby uh, holed up in the garage yep. for uh, good portions of the, the week or the year, and you take it out once in a while. And if you don't get a chance to turn over the engine with some degree of regularity, uh, engines get stiff and batteries go weak. Yeah, and that's that's exactly where we were. Um, you know, so we had that, that did delay us that day. I charged the battery first thing in the morning. Uh, because the plane just didn't have the power to actually uh, turn the engine over. Um, but once we had charged it, things were just fine. Um, and then we charged it again when we had stopped for lunch in um, Susanville, which is just right on the California, Oregon, or Nevada border. So when did you finally then put out of the, the airport initially? Uh, we pulled out of uh, Lodi right around 8.20, I believe. Okay, so not too terribly delayed. No. But enough so that things then kind of began to uh, snowball, pardon the pun. Yeah. Um, by the time you were kind of into the forced landing with your daughter um, uh, responding to the turbulence in a uh, an unpleasant fashion, uh, you sat down in an extremely rural area, didn't you? Yeah, you know, and I... I explained it is uh, Rome State, Oregon is is where the um, air, airstrip was, and it truly was exactly that. It was an airstrip uh, made of gravel. It was out in the middle of the field, literally in the middle of nowhere, no buildings, um, nothing for better than 50 miles around us. And um, I think the only thing we probably would have seen was the coyotes. So there's no control tower there. There's no fuel or food services. There's literally nothing? Literally nothing. There was a sign that described it as Rome State Airport and a place to actually tie the aircraft down, you know, to chain it down in case of, you know, bad weather and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that, that literally was it. And uh, This is almost like a rest stop. Uh, you know, for for want of better uh, comparison for folks uh, in the audience that don't fly, but this is a restaurant rest stop along the way that has absolutely zero services whatsoever. Not even a bathroom. Not even a bathroom. And you're putting down on gravel, which means that you know if you don't hit it right, uh, you can do some damage to the plane. I would imagine. Right. Yeah, that was a major concern 
when I flew over it, I, I looked at it and I told my wife and daughter, it's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. But it was the only thing close and safe to put the plane down as quickly as I could. You put it down, she got out, you cleaned things up, and then it became a waiting game for a while. Why? Yeah, well, the weather truly was too bad to continue at that point. And I had, we had had all the reservations of staying and actually sleeping in the aircraft right there in the middle of the field uh, because it, the weather just didn't look like it was going to turn in our favor. And we'd even called our oldest daughter, Tabitha, um, and told her, hey, we're, we're probably not going to be able to make it today. And she'd even made, you know, the offer of, of driving out to get us. And for her, it would have been a six-hour drive even at that point for her to come and get us where it was only about a 50-minute flight for us to, you know, direct line over the mountains and right to Mountain Home. Uh, so we, we had actually reserved the thought of, of spending the night there. And, and truly, we're planning to do that. And then what happened was the weather, we had a huge change in the weather again, where it looked really clear and really good. And I'm looking at it thinking, well, we've got 50 minutes. I can make this flight. And when we proceeded on, the, the flight was going really well up until we got over the Owyhee Mountains. And, and, you know, maybe the big lesson here is that as fast as the weather can clear, <laughs> it can also get ugly again, can't it? Oh, absolutely. Well, let's pick up that side of the story and the other side of the timeout here, because it, it, it leaves us now, this is like a good cliffhanger, uh, and you're going to have to wait to answer the doorbell before you can turn to the next page and find out what happened. Um, as literally now, we're kind of in the middle of this. So the decision is made, the weather has cleared, it's only 50 minutes. What possibly could go wrong in 50 minutes? Oh, yes, the question of the ages. We'll get back to more of our visit today with Brian Brown. The book Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. I'm Craig Roberts. We'll get back, back to more right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is every pilot's worst nightmare, a sudden change in the weather. Welcome back to our conversation. Craig Roberts along with Brian Brown. He has written a new book detailing his family's experiences of Memorial Day weekend of 2012. His book is called Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. So we pick things up. Brian, you decide there's a break in the weather. You only have 50-minute flight to be able to meet up with your daughter, Tabitha, there in Mountain Home, Idaho. So you're going to go ahead and, uh, and chance it. Do you, are you trained or, or uh, licensed to fly with instruments? I have some real brief training, but not licensed for it, no. Okay. So uh, visual for you is really important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it really is what kind of spelled out what happened to us Um because like I said, we, we took off from Rome, and things were going great. Uh, we were really right on schedule. Everything was fine. But then when we got over the Owyhee Mountains in Idaho, uh, one, the, the air started getting very turbulent, and then we literally had uh, clouds forming right in front of us. And as, as I was watching them form on one side, I started veering off to the other direction, saw him form to that, to that new direction I was headed, and I thought, wow, we need to turn back again. And as soon as I had looked to turn back, we were already completely closed in. Mm. And so, you know, in order to keep that visual like you were talking about, I was just underneath the cloud line, but just above the mountain ridge line. So it was in a very narrow margin of, of space, you know, to be able to um, 
fly safely, really. And um, what happened is after I went over that last ridge line right before we crashed, I basically hit a, a mountain wave or an air current that ripped the airflow right out from underneath the wings. Now, help us understand, for, for folks that don't, don't know quite all of the uh, the mechanics of this, you, you suddenly begin losing lift, don't you? Yeah, it's very quick. And, uh, I mean, it's like an undertow in the ocean. You know, you can feel it as a swimmer. And to a certain degree, I can feel it as a pilot under the controls. But where I really saw it was on my airspeed indicator. The, the yoke, does it start to fight you as you're... It, it gets a little mushy, yeah. yeah. And um, so, you know, I, like I said, though, I saw it on the airspeed indicator. We were traveling at about 110 miles an hour, and it dropped to 40 in the snap of a finger. Ooh, that's like slamming the brakes on pretty quick when you're on the freeway. Yeah. And Problem is, on a freeway, you've always got the option of veering off to the left or right and, and hopefully avoiding a crash. Kind of hard to do that when you're how many feet up in the air? We were only about 900 feet above the ground level. Oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. And that's where... Um, when I saw that, I actually absolutely knew we were in trouble, and I had told my wife and daughter, I'm sorry, I don't think we're going to make it. I love you. And I had pitched the nose of the aircraft down into the canyon to try and get the airspeed back so the plane would con- continue to fly. Did it work? It did. Um, right before we um, got to the bottom, I was able to feel some control back in the plane, and I pulled the nose of the plane up as abruptly as I could. Uh, we hit two trees with the wingtips and uh, then smacked belly first into the next mountainside in front of us. Mm. Your wife bought that airplane for you, didn't she? She did. It was a, it was a gift of love. And um, She had to have been having second thoughts at this point, though, as to the wisdom of that decision, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know if she did or not. You know, she... Um, we, we can talk about that, too, a little bit later, but I, I do know, you know, they both, Heather and, uh, and Jayanne, have the utmost of confidence in my flying. Um, they, they did, in fact, they said, I flew that aircraft all the way down to the ground as far as I could. And um, it, as as whatever comfort that that, that can offer, it, it did offer some. Well, I guess at the end of the day, I mean, there there's the pilot who flies a plane and crashes it and survives, and the one who flies the plane crashes it and doesn't. And I think the guy that managed to fly it, crash it, and yet have all three of you walk away from that crash, so to speak, uh, has got to say something to your uh, your pilot abilities. Yeah, and that that is where the... You know, the FAA and the NTSB, when I talked to them, that's, that is exactly what they said. Because I was fighting grief for a lot of this. I, I was the one behind the controls. I was the one that made all those decisions. Yeah. And um, I was really beating myself up pretty good over it. And, um, you know, they just they just walked me through the whole process. And and actually, we're, we're, we're very forgiving. They said those exact words. You know, look, you flew that plane and you, you walked away from it along with, along with all your passengers. There's one other element, though, yeah. that we've kind of held back on for the moment. Um, and I want to have you dive into that when we come back after a timeout. But the other element here, um, while it is true that you were flying that airplane and making those decisions, um, you weren't alone in that, weren't you? There there was someone else in control, too, wasn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. There let's let's find else. out who that was when we come back after a timeout, and, and the listeners are now wondering, well, gee, his wife may be sitting in the co-pilot seat there beside him. Maybe she's got control of the yoke as well, and is kind of making, you know, wives are good at telling husbands how to drive better, 
And when it comes to directions, by the way, they're usually right. Uh, but what of that other control? We'll talk about that. His, our story with Brian Brown called Rescued continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 